Hi, and welcome to this audio commentary on Take This Waltz, the 2012 movie directed by Sarah Polly. My name's Rob Caravaggio, robcaravaggio.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to synchronize your copy of Take This Waltz to this audio commentary, we'll give you a countdown here in just a moment to help you do that. In the meantime, what you can do is locate the very start of the movie. We're watching a Region 1 DVD here, and there is a Magnolia Pictures logo that comes just before the start of the film proper. When that Magnolia Pictures logo fades to black, hit pause on your DVD, Blu-ray, or what have you, and that will allow us all momentarily to hit play together and watch the movie in perfect, synchronized harmony. Okay, if you've taken a moment to locate that sync point just after the Magnolia Pictures logo has faded to black, it looks like it's eight seconds in on our DVD here where we have it paused. I'm going to say in a moment here, I'm going to say three, two, one, play, and that'll be your cue to hit play right along with me. I am still without a remote control here, and uh, I'm still confident somehow that it'll turn up. But uh, this entails me getting out of my chair just for a moment to uh, hit the player manually. So uh, we've been able to um, boost uh, the volume on that uh, in uh, when we make the MP3. But uh, you might hear my voice a little bit faint in the background when I do the countdown. But I'm going to say three, two, one, play, and that'll be your cue to hit play. All right, ready? Three, two, one. Okay, sorry about the commotion. I'm still confident that remote's going to somehow turn up. Take This Waltz, the title of the movie is on the screen right now if you're trying to sync up. And let me read a few credits here to help you. Michelle Williams' credit is on the screen right now, and so is she, kind of in soft focus there. Seth Rogen's credit. Luke Kirby's credit. And those are our three principles. Uh, and there's Sarah Silverman's credit, if you're trying to sync. So, um... A lot of things are set up here by Polly. I'm a fan of Polly's, by the way. This movie was um, a, uh, sort of a request from uh, my friend Stacy, who's a, a big fan of this film. And I was a fan of it. I liked it. I saw saw an early screener of it, and I really liked it. And then I got to see it theatrically. I liked Polly's first movie, uh, which was called Away From Her, her first movie as a director. And... Um, I think this picks up on a lot of the themes she was interested in Away From Her, but I kind of like Away From Her slightly better. There's some things that Polly does as a director that I'll probably go into, and um, I think she's a great director, actually, but I just... um, Some of the moves this movie makes and some of her directorial moves, I think, are not to my aesthetic liking, and I'll explain what they are. the use of music is one, and I'll point it out at a key scene that's coming up here at the beginning of the movie. 
but uh, I think it's a little bit deliberate. I, I, I um, too deliberate. I think they, there's. Um, uh, I don't dislike the song. There's Luke Montpierre's credit, the uh, DP. I really like his work. Um, yeah, it's nothing against the song. The title of the movie, of course, takes its uh, takes uh, the name of a Leonard Cohen song. Leonard Cohen, of course, one of the many Canadian associations that Sarah Polly, herself a Canadian, has embraced in her in her movie here. Yeah, this is like a really deliberate use of music, and it's, again, nothing against the song. Also, this opening scene sets up a kind of um, color palette that the movie's working with. These really um, bright colors. Uh, the use of digital photography was really, um, really makes these colors pop, um, the... the sort of um, really vibrant, warm colors that this movie has. It's a very summery movie, that um, bright light, sunlight coming in the window there. Um, here's the big head fake at this, this scene. It's a flash forward, so if we've seen the trailer or anything, we assume that her man there, and her anguished face that she's making uh, throughout this sequence, the title sequence here, is should be a tip-off, right? But... Um, it's easy to miss, I guess. I didn't get it the first time, or I, did, I sort of missed it the first time I saw the movie. I was wondering why she's so anguished, and I knew that the Seth Rogen character plays a chef, and so it was curious that she was doing the cooking, making those blueberry muffins. It, it really does. I mean, even the blue and the blueberries pop uh, with that color palette. You know, she's got, like, turquoise uh, nails on her on her feet. You have those shots of her feet, her bare feet, suggesting a comfort level or a domesticity, maybe. Um, but yeah, you, you assume that, uh, or at least I did the first time I saw the movie, I, I assume that that was like Seth Rogen, uh, who's playing her husband Lou, uh, in the movie, but on second viewing and, or if you're looking for it, you can kind of tell that you know, when he walks in by the window, that silhouette of the man is actually Luke Kirby. Uh, and you can tell because Seth Rogen, uh, is a little bit huskier, a lot huskier than Luke Kirby. <laughs> So you can easily tell, but it's easily missed as as well. And here's the thing with that opening title sequence. It's it's one of the directorial moves that Polly makes that I just don't, I kind of don't get it um, in the sense that I, I get the movie. It's just, it's a flash forward, right? So it's a flash forward to when she's left Lou and she's living with with Daniel. And that's why she has this anguished face and, and, uh, and so she's been through all of the events that the movie's going to take us through now, beginning here with this rather heavy-handed symbolic scene. Um, well, here's, you know, I, as a matter of, it seems like one of those things you do in screenwriting or filmmaking when, uh, screenwriting and filmmaking, where you kind of, you've got your narrative and then you just take a scene out of context and put it in the beginning as a flash forward as a like a flashback or a flash forward that's out of context but i don't see how that flash forward i mean it makes for a, a nice looking opening title sequence but i don't see how that flash forward really um helps polly tell the story any better you know what i mean um how does it uh well, maybe somebody can write in um and my friend stacy who's a really really big on the movie. Um, and again, so am I. I'm sort of getting off on the wrong foot here. I'm getting off on a, not the wrong foot, I'm getting off on a critical foot here, critiquing a couple things. But um, 
you know, the things I liked about the movie I, I adored and the things I didn't like about the movie, I just, uh, it's one of those things where you, you mostly like a movie and then it does a couple things. Uh, Terrence Malick always does this for me too, where he, I'm generally positive, but he'll do a couple things that I just can't stand. Um, or just in terms of my own aesthetics, uh, prefer aesthetic preferences. That's a nice shot there. Um, so yeah, I don't, so if you, if you have an idea of how that opening sequence as a flash forward helps tell the story, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure how it's supposed to affect me in terms of storytelling. Um, I mean, I, I, I think I've got the, the color settings and the contrast on my, uh, uh, sort of flat screen TV here uh, set pretty pretty well uh, pretty pretty uh, conservatively I think uh, if that makes sense and uh, you still have these these colors popping you know her her running jacket that she's wearing there the blue of his shirt you know um, some of the shots I think some of the rickshaw shots some of the moving shots in this movie some of the walk and talks I think too were um, uh, and in the special features if you have the the blu-ray, um, they, or the DVD, they go into it. Um, some of them were shot on a Canon, uh, SLR one, I think, a digital camera, like a consumer grade digital camera that you could buy at Best Buy for taking pictures of, you know, everyday photo needs. Uh, and of course they take HD, uh, the SDLR, the, uh, SLR, uh, DSLRs take, uh, digital video now. And so, um, this is a camera that, you know, a kind of DSLR that you'd find in the average household, and they used it uh, because they do take HD. Uh, they used it to shoot some of the some of the footage for the movie. They used Panavision, you know, regular movie cameras too. Uh, I think Panavision, but um, I think it. I think it was a kind of a cool idea, and I think it. You know, it, what I liked about it was that Polly. This is not. Um, a huge budget movie and Polly used it as um, because she, not because she thought it would be cool but because she she sort of it made sense for to keep the the production um as streamlined as possible on those rickshaw shots those moving shots and and um and she liked the uh, the look of it 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 sort of those digital cameras are able to give her the look that um she was going for it with the movie, so, you know, whatever works for the, for what you're trying to achieve with the movie is, is what you should do, is kind of the, <laughs> I guess, uh, what, what she's embracing there, it's a, a old, uh, not terribly old, but there's a quote by Billy Friedkin, uh, the great director, about, um, about something to that effect, that you do whatever works, you do what you need to do. So this is their meeting, uh, Daniel and Margot. Um, by the way, I think um, uh, Michelle Williams is about the best young screen performer we have. Uh, I think Luke Kirby's uh, holds his own uh, in a lot of these scenes. Um, but you know, all of this cutesy stuff in there. This is, uh, I guess, what they call now a, a meet cute, uh, where um, they they meet in an adorable way and sort of have this instant rapport. And, um, you know, it's almost as annoying as that childish, uh, antics that she gets into with Lou, you know, because it's so, uh, 
they're strangers. They're supposed to be strangers. And so, you know, it's a little too familiar. It's a little too... But I see what Polly's doing. There's a couple things she's doing. You know, I, I don't altogether object. Uh, you know, for one thing, what she's doing in this whole movie is, I think she's... And she and Sarah Polly is... I, I love her. She's really smart about movies. And um, I think she has a good handle on cinematic history, too. And she's seen a lot of good movies. And she knows what she's... She clearly knows what she's doing as a director. And she has a vision when she makes these movies. So, um, but anyway... Uh, what she's doing in the movie overall is kind of what she's doing with the way these two characters meet. Um, she is embracing certain tropes of romantic movies and romantic comedies, certain, um, certain tropes that she's, uh, she's aware of all the tropes is what I'm saying. And she embraces some and subverts or sidesteps or reimagines others. Uh, so the trope of, uh, you know, the two characters meeting in, a, in an adorable way and having an instant rapport, we see that in romantic movies a lot, and uh, it's often hard to believe, and it's kind of... Um, but that's part of the point, too, right? Is that um, these two characters in the universe they inhabit uh, are sort of meant to be together i mean we're we're supposed to believe it here at the beginning of the movie that you know they're kind of meant to be or uh so it is a unique thing for both of them uh it is an out of the ordinary remarkable thing that they're having this instant rapport that's kind of the whole point right so it kind of under point undercuts my point that it's not realistic it's supposed to be remarkable but uh that's like uh, i'll point out some of the tropes too but th- that's one that she's embracing and the movie kind of has a an uh a knowingness about that trope when it has that opening scene, but it doesn't, it doesn't have that ironic kind of, uh, what I associate or sometimes call, uh, what I associate with or sometimes call like a hipster irony knowingness, you know, it just, it just sort of plays it straight, which I like. So this is one of the uses of music I can't stand. Um, it's this, this airport, um, sorry, this airport corridor, they're walking down this airport corridor and now they're on this sort of monorail um, or uh, sitting next to each other, this awkward moments that are played very, uh, very nicely um, by the actors. But when they were walking down that airport corridor and that song was playing again, I have nothing against the song, right? But um, it's in slow motion and we're supposed to see that they're both anxious. They're both kind of attracted to each other, but they don't know how to handle it. And, um, and it's the music and the slow-mo are the two big things that I don't, it's sort of this very deliberate directorial choice. Polly does it again at the end with her 360, uh, you know, shot, that really elaborate shot where they're having sex with all, you know, all of these sexual situations and that kind of sexual montage. Uh, Very deliberate choice used with music that sort of doesn't take me out of the movie, but I just, when she does those things, like this is the kind of cutesy stuff. This is very romantic comedy stuff. They have this instant rapport, you know. Uh, they're, They're being a lot more flirty than they would anybody would be with a stranger i think but it's not like they've been drinking or something right um well they were on a plane i guess there's a short flight though 
I like the character touch of Margot that she just blurts stuff out. I will be going on and on about how much I like Michelle Williams and how much I like this movie. There are lots of things I like, you know. Uh, but um, I want to sort of establish what my critiques are <laughs> at the outset so that I can uh, sort of pick up on them throughout the movie and, and sort of point them out maybe. Um, that's one of the hardest things to believe there, um, that he's lived right across the street and they don't, and she never noticed him, you know, um, a particularly handsome dude living right across the street. Although we don't know how long he's lived there, I guess, but, you know, and I can tell you from living in big cities all my life, you often are surprised who lives right next door and you never even realized it. Here's our first look at Seth Rogen, the oafish Seth Rogen. I think he's reasonably good in this movie, although I think the casting is a bit curious. Um, Polly was obviously looking to cast, I mean, obviously liked the idea of casting comedic actors uh, uh, in dramatic roles. So everybody I've spoken to about the movie thinks that this whole cutesy talk, and all couples have that kind of cutesy stuff that they do with the nicknames and stuff, but this whole sort of cutesy stuff they do, um, this patter that they have with each other, quickly gets annoying, right? I, I think Polly gives it to us three or four times in the movie, and I, I think we only need it once uh, or twice, you know, once right now and then maybe pick up on it later but you know when it when they do this cutesy thing two three four times in the movie it quickly gets old but that's the point i mean i mean one of the nice things about the screenplay and the way polly is telling this story is the way she establishes this character of margo uh we're in the first say 15 minutes here of the movie right but we've already established that she's uh, it's really efficient, actually, uh, and a really nice character. I like the character. Um, you don't see characters like this a lot. She is um, unfulfilled, not just in her love life or in her marriage. She's 28, been married five years, so she has kind of that um, proverbial itch. But um, she's set up not just as someone who's restless in her relationship or where the spark has gone out of her relationship. There's Sarah Silverman. Um but she's she's set up as someone who's yearning and 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 unfulfilled in other ways too, right? She writes these travel brochures, but she really, as she'll tell the the Daniel character, she, what she really wants to do is another kind of writing, a more artistically fulfilling kind of writing. But she's not doing that. She's writing these brochures for paychecks, and her husband does cookbooks, you know, and appears to be the more of the breadwinner. Um, or maybe that's a presumption I'm making. That's not established in fact in the in the movie, but she's unfulfilled in her professional life and in her private life, and so she has this state of ennui, as they say, um, as a, someone who's approaching thirty years old and been married or is married, and uh, it's a it's a kind of character that I like seeing in a movie that a lot of people can relate to. I think everybody on some level. Um, this idea that she is um, just realizing now that 
you know, falling in love is like this blissful thing and she's never going to fall in love again if she stays married to the same guy and she's never going to feel that bliss again. And her life is going to be um, like a letdown or stayed in the way that this character, what this character Geraldine as the alcoholic sister-in-law to whom she's close uh, sort of represents, right? Um, She represents what Margot will become and um, I like that they have this friendliness and uh, closeness. Uh, I like that in-laws aren't portrayed as shitty because many people hate their in-laws and, you know, their spouses, relatives, but many people have a great relationship with them. And um, I think Sarah Silverman really smokes, so this must have... It's nice anytime an, an actor smokes and they smoke in their character because... it they you know she looks like she knows how to smoke a cigarette <laughs> very funny scene uh i i think um well look at these colors so the other thing that's being set up really early in the movie that i like so, oh, and it's subverting some of those tropes that you see in romantic movies, romantic comedies, right? Like um, in uh, predictable Hollywood movies, she would hate her in-laws maybe or, or they would be critical of her and she'd have the audience would have every reason to want her to leave Lou. But she's in love with Lou. She's just, it doesn't have that spark of falling in love uh, that she has, with, that she will develop with Daniel. Um it's funny that Daniel and Lou kind of resemble each other, right? Um, Luke Kirby is a skinnier, handsomer Seth Rogen. <laughs> Which, I, I mean, Seth Rogen is probably, if he hasn't made that observation in doing press for the movie, I, I bet he's thought it. I mean, it's hard to ignore. But um, the other thing, this whole scene that we're getting here where it sets up the Geraldine character who will be kind of not a Greek chorus, but a kind of um, angel on the shoulder of both Margot and the audience. Uh, and then, so when we see her kind of have have a tough time, it, it has a nice effect, I think, in the movie. But um, they're always in bed like in the daytime when the sun's out, which I actually kind of like. Um, bedroom scenes when it's light out. I like that we get that whole sequence with Lou having the family over to, so they can sample his recipes that he will be putting in his chicken cookbook. Right. And the fact that he's a chicken chef, right? You know, chicken, everything tastes, tastes like chicken will be the name of the book, right? The idea that he's, he's, um, an expert, he's a, a culinary expert at cooking the dish that everybody kind of likes and is kind of chicken isn't bland chicken can be used in as he does used in all kinds of impressive dishes but um chicken is kind of the thing everybody eats you know and uh so it's a nice little symbolic touch you know the the movie's filled with little touches like that and polly knows how to place them without leaning into them too hard as i say um that thing at the beginning where she's whipping the guy who has the adultery thing around his neck uh, and it becomes this kind of symbolic foreshadowing of her, the, um, not self-flagellation, but the, the, um, anguish that she's going to be going through 
herself is a little bit on the nose, right? That whole sequence at the beginning. I mean, and um, I spoke to my friend Stacy about it, and she's like, well, do you think it would be on the nose if he didn't, if the guy she was whipping didn't have the adultery sign around his neck? And the answer is no, I, I don't think it would be as on the, I think what makes it on the nose is he has this fucking sign that says adultery. Uh, and, and, and then that makes all these sort of um, uh, tangent, or uh, associative connections to the scarlet letter right and um which i don't think this story has any kind of connection to the story of hester prynne in hawthorne's novel because um hester prynne you know her anguish has to do with the shame and and ostracization (laughs) i won't attempt that word again uh the the shame and, and being ostracized um for uh, by a society that cannot accept a a woman having a child outside of wedlock or a woman having an affair, uh, it, it is a paternalistic and um, theocratic society in which Hester Prynne in Hawthorne's novel exists, and so her shame and her anguish uh, flow directly from that. Uh, whereas what I like about Take This Waltz is that they exist in a in a universe and seem to exist in a in a culture you know um lou is is clearly uh uh and you know we saw his family and as a as a jew i can say you know he's he's as a half jew i I can say his family is clearly jewish (laughs) and uh but uh it's unclear if they're religious jews but i'm just saying that um what i like about the movie is there's this complete lack of um any kind of theocratic or religious uh or any other kind of moralizing uh you know margot doesn't live in a world that is moralizing with her at her for making a decision about um wanting to have an affair her shame and her uh, anguish and her diff- all the difficulties she has about that decision or, or, or in, in you know the whole movie is about her trying to make that decision uh, in a way she can live with um, and all of her pain and anguish over that comes from her own sense of I don't want to say honor but her, her own sense of uh, self and her own sense of w- what would be the best thing for her what you know she doesn't want to hurt Lou and all of this all of that difficulty that she's going through uh, nobody moralizes at her and she seems to live in a, a society that that um, that's not an influence on her decision making you know um, she we don't have a scene of her going to a priest that that um, you know yells at her or something uh, so I, I like that. So that that's why the the sort of scarlet letter thing is um, not really an analog. It's a very um, I want to say hipster sensibility, um, but there are neighborhoods that look like this in Toronto. Um, I I just think that. I think Sarah Polly says in the special features that they they really tried to even play up the um, eccentricness and colorfulness of this neighborhood they live in. This is a great shot here, by the way. And this is, I believe, one of the shots they did with, uh, I don't know for sure, but this, this might be one of the shots they did with the cannon 
with the uh, consumer-grade digital camera. Now, every almost every student film these days, people in film school, is made with a consumer-grade camera. Uh, and they take, you know, HD video, so it looks, it looks good. <laughs> uh, the, the playing field has been leveled. So the idea that he's a rickshaw driver is actually one of the few criticisms that uh, my my pal, um, they're very good together, these two, by the way. I, I like um, Michelle Williams with Luke Kerb. I mean, they look like two people that would be hot for each other, two people in their late 20s who would be hot for each other. And they, and she, she, um, I like how she, her character that when she says that gay lords do, I mean, she's sort of, she's flirting, but she's kind of happy for coming up with the, she's self-satisfied for having come up with that line, you know. The whole thing with the should, should vitation here, I like the joke in the movie, it, and I, I think it's actually good writing, but. And and Luke Kirby performs it nicely, but I just don't like that um, he explains what a should vitation is. He says, well, a should vitation is when somebody, you know, and that's something I, that would work so much better for me if he just doesn't explain it, you know, because he, he just trusts that she knows what he means and trusts the audience that we know. This is like, the scene that I would point out where they're at this picnic table here drinking coffee. This is a scene that I would point out as being um, the most egregiously overly colorful. I realize that that's part of the both the aesthetic and the, the symbolic kind of, you know, the passions of rich colors um, that, that that's what the movie's going for. But um You'll, you're going to have a master shot here in a second. We're doing this over-the-shoulder stuff here. But, but um, you're going to have a master shot in a second where you see milk crates behind. Uh, yeah, see, here you go. There, even the milk crates can't stay one color. I've never seen Rastafarian milk, milk crates, right? I mean, they're green and, and yellow and red and brightly so... <laughs> And then there's all this different colored fruit behind her, you know, and there's there's a belt sale apparently at that bodega or whatever where they're selling every, you know, Technicolor belts. I mean, it's just a little strange. So this is heavy duty flirting that they're doing right now, which I always get a kick out of in movies that, you know, she just goes to his house, just goes to coffee with him in, the, in their own neighborhood where presumably anybody who knows them could see them. You know, um, I don't know. Doesn't doesn't work for me. It would be, I think it's more interesting if they have some anxiety about it, you know, and say, okay, well, let's let's walk out of our neighborhood to have a rendezvous, uh, even though there's nothing between us. You know, I, I think that might be more interesting. But I'll stop rewriting Sarah Polly's movie now. Um, this is one of the good scenes for Michelle Williams, uh, this scene that takes place in his apartment. Oh, uh, yeah, I was going to say, one of the uh, critiques that um, my pal Stacy had about the movie, which she loved otherwise, was that, um, look, this Luke Kirby character, he drives a fucking rickshaw for a living, even though he's almost 30, 
and how much money could he make to have this actually kind of nice apartment with all of this actually kind of nice stuff in it? Um, you know, you wouldn't, you'd think he'd have 10 roommates driving a rickshaw. How much money can you make driving a rickshaw? And as far as suspension of disbelief, I think, I think she has a point. First of all, this is something that if you're from a screenwriting perspective or a story perspective, this is something that you should be thinking about. Uh, you know, if you're a writer or a filmmaker, uh, you should, you should ask questions like that. But, um, as far as my own suspension of dis, and it's a note that I would give, you know, uh, if I, if I came upon this screenplay, but um, I, I feel like, as far as my own suspension of disbelief goes, I'm perfectly fine accepting that he has money from elsewhere or that somehow he can afford um, this apartment. And uh, here's why. People have, and I, I'm talking about in real life, not in movies. In real life, people have all kinds of financial situations. Uh, people have all kinds of setups, right? Um, I know people who work construction but live in a huge house and um, or, or have all kinds of, you know, drive a, a luxury vehicle. Uh, I hate when people say vehicle. Uh, drive, a, drive a nice, real nice car and, and they have kind of a, a working class job and you wonder, well, how do they afford all that stuff? Maybe they're in heavy debt, but also maybe, um, as I say, people have all kinds of setups. On the, uh, this was captured very well on the uh, Lena Dunham show, the first season of Girls, the Lena Dunham show, which I which I really like. Uh, the character Hannah, the main character played by Dunham, has this bo- sort of on and off boyfriend for the first season, and um, she's been with him a while and so knows him fairly well. Although it comes out later that she doesn't know him as well as she thinks. But um, he has this kind of large, um, at least for New York, large studio apartment or one bedroom apartment um, with a large living room and stuff. And uh, and he she asks him, I think like halfway through season one, she asks him, uh, how do you even afford this apartment? I don't even know how you afford it. And he just kind of says like, oh, my I think it's his grandmother or his aunt sends him five hundred dollars a month or a thousand dollars a month every month of his life, no matter what. (laughs) And that's how he affords this apartment and everything else without working. My whole thing is that's very common in real life Um, and not that exact situation, but people having a financial setup outside of people getting money from a, a legal settle- settlement or from some other source, uh, a steady that subsidizes their own income. Uh, and I know people like that. And I think that's really, really common. So you look at someone and say, how can they even afford that car with that job? And well, they get money from some, you know, some people are drug dealers. I mean, <laughs> I'm being laughed at in all seriousness. Uh, some people are drug dealers. Um, so I have no problem with him driving a rickshaw and having this nice or relatively nice place. Um, I mean, uh, somebody who writes cookbooks for a living, it's kind of hard to believe he would have such a nice place too. Right. I mean, you can do this almost with any movie character, but, um, it's so e- it's so common in life for people to have money from elsewhere that I just feel like, you know, it's fine. You can you can retcon it, and not it, it's not too much of a stretch. It it makes sense to me that he would live here.
Yeah, or or maybe he just instead of going to college or something, uh, maybe he just saved a bunch of money and has a lot of money. Say, you know, some people are just just fucking thrifty. Um, that's a very cool scene. I don't like that it kind of goes nowhere. Um, we don't have a takeaway from it. Um, like they don't resolve to see each other again or something. You know, um, I hate that term takeaway too, but. It's useful, I think, because people know kind of what I mean. Um, I was just giving someone notes on a screenplay, and I, I told her, you know, it might be good to kind of think that way about your scenes. You know, what's the you watch a movie like Chinatown in one of the great screenplays? You know, every scene there's a takeaway. There's something, there's something um, that Jake learns, uh, or something that happens, and but. Um, I like how mechanical, you know, they're passionate, they're into each other still after being married five years, but there's kind of this um, mechanical way of taking their undies off when it's time to have sex. <clears throat> this works, too, if you do this trick to people in the shower. You'd, you'd think they'd feel that someone just threw water in there. It's a nice little device in the movie, too. Later on, he'll say, oh, it was a long-term joke. I was going to, you know, let you in on it when we were 80 or something. There's a little pamphlet. That she, it's interesting that I guess she has to... I guess part of her job is doing the graphic design. Not graphic, but sort of plugging the copy into the actual thing. Like, she has this she has this little change of heart, too. So there's no there's no dialogue to this little scene here, right? By the it, it's nicely shot too. The camera sort of slides over at first. Um, it's all the it it, it has to, well you have the dialogue here when she calls Lou, but um, <clears throat> otherwise it's kind of nice that you know that whole oh I want to go see him I'm so happy to to see him outside and then she has that change of heart she has to do that without saying anything she has to use her face and her body and. Uh, like I said, I think Michelle Williams is about, I, and, uh, when she did, um, my week with Marilyn and she nominated for an Academy Award for it. Um, I thought that movie, when I saw that movie at the theater, I, I actually fell asleep, not because of the movie, because I was very tired. I was actually very interested in the movie, but, um, I just fell asleep and, uh, but I thought she was sensational as Marilyn Monroe. I mean, I, I thought she nailed it. I thought, you know. If you watch footage, I mean, that's the way Monroe really spoke. That's the way she kind of looked at people uh, in conversation. And um, but I, and I and I had a discriminating eye. You know, I, I've read every major biography of Monroe, <laughs> but um, I just think Michelle Williams is sensational, and um, she seems to have really good instincts about what to do uh, with a character. Um, you know, the difficulty, to my mind, of this character, I don't, I don't know if uh, Polly has commented on this, um, the difficulty of playing this character for her, for uh, Michelle Williams, I think is like, has to do with the way these kinds of movies in Hollywood, uh, or the way the tropes, again, of romantic comedies or romantic movies. Um, she has to play a state of mind in this Margot character, a kind of anguished indecision. I keep coming back to that word, anguished, because I think it's apt. Uh, she has to play a kind of anguished indecision, right? Um, 
should I leave my husband or should I cheat on my husband with this guy I'm clearly falling in love with uh, or shouldn't I? Um, and it's tearing her up and it's torturing her. She has to play that anguished indecision for almost the movie's entire running time. And the reason I point it out is, again, because in most romantic comedies or romantic movies, that state of mind, an actress or an actor only has to play for usually literally a moment. Uh, and here's what I mean. Again, the it's a state of mind of anguished uh, indecision. Should I or shouldn't I? You know, the character literally has a literal di dilemma. Should I do this or that? Two things I could do. And she's, has, she's wrestling with those two things for the whole movie. Uh, in a movie like... Uh, I don't know, Fatal Attraction or Disclosure or even Breakfast at Tiffany's. Uh, two characters, um, you know, or Cat on a Hot Tin Roof or something. You know, you have two characters who are like, um, oh, I want you and I want you. Oh, but we mustn't. There are all these reasons why we shouldn't get together romantically. Yes, I know, but we, but I want you so badly. Oh, but we mustn't. And then they finally kiss and 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 have sex you know the, the scene culminates with them either doing it or not doing it and so the actors who are doing that only have to play that state of mind for that moment in the movie and then they go ahead and make their decision um michael douglas knows that he shouldn't cheat on his wife with glenn close but then comes that moment where he just goes for it right and uh deals with the consequences for the rest of the movie Sarah Silverman. <laughs> that appears to be just the real Sarah Silverman fucking with uh, Michelle Williams. Um, but just to finally make my point here, Michelle Williams has to play that state of mind for the whole movie. Now, that's a difficult state of mind to, pull, to for a character to be in. You know, should I or shouldn't I do this? And I mustn't, I mustn't. And she, she comes very close to doing it at several scenes throughout the movie, but chooses otherwise and she has to make that choice a little bit uh, Michelle Williams I mean has to make the choice look a little bit different each time and it has to be a little bit more complicated each time and she does it she fucking does it um, Luke Kirby on the other hand is not attached to a girlfriend or a wife so he doesn't have to do that with his character Daniel he just he wants her he's already decided and he's but he's gonna let her it's almost diabolical. <laughs> He's going to let her um, make that decision. He's not going to jump her. He's not going to force her into bed. He's not going to beg her to stay in his apartment when she wants to leave. I like how Geraldine here, played by Silverman, is right, right onto it right away. You know, she sees... But but it doesn't, make, it doesn't jibe with the scene that's coming up in a second. But I do like that. I mean, obviously, they're doing the thing where this character is an alcoholic and has her own troubles, but she's has a wisdom somehow that that uh, the young Margot doesn't yet have access to. Um, they do something with the Geraldine character later on that I don't enjoy. That I'll I'll point out. So we're so she, Sarah Silverman is explaining that for the audience, right? Like, oh no, they put that stuff in the water that makes it turn color if it, if there's urine. Um, I, I'm not a water person, uh, not a water person at all, but do they really do that in swimming pools? 
I'm, a- I'm asking a friend of mine uh, who is off mic and prefers to be there. I know. Um, do they really do that? You were a lifeguard. Okay, they do. I know that's annoying for listeners. Sorry, but um, I had someone who was a lifeguard here, and they, they, this is a real thing they do. So here's the scene that people felt like commenting on. I thought it was much ado about nothing. It's, I mean, I and I and I get what Polly's doing. You know, um, Margot is in the shower here with seeing women that she will become. You know, uh, it's like that, almost like that Picasso painting. The, med, the. Tomizelle de, de Avignon, um, the very famous painting he did in 03 or 05, I think. Um, the bathers, the prostitutes who are bathers, but um, uh, and, and the and the conversation is a reminder that of of what the symbolism is here too. I think um, you know, Margot is facing the nude reality literally of who she might turn into this silverman character who's approaching middle age married kids and uh, not well contented but not unhappy either uh and then these older women talking about their lives and nudity and then of course in the master which we did a commentary for paul thomas anderson will have that nude scene with older women in it too so that was this is only the first nude scene with older women in it of a major movie and 2012 but yeah okay i mean it's very cool that these older actresses were brave enough to do it but i don't know i didn't see what the big deal was um it's pretty brave of michelle williams and especially silverman too who sort of does comedy makes fun of people for a living just to be naked like that you know we never get to see uh, Luke Kirby naked. It's still one of the fundamental uh, sexist things in movies, you know, is that male nudity is not treated the same as female nudity, you know. it's. But the remarkable thing about that nude scene with the shower is most of the time we see female nudity, especially with um, a young star who's great looking like Michelle Williams. And Sarah Silverman, Sarah Silverman, too, is great looking. Um, <clears throat> we've just seen all of her, uh, and she's great looking. But um, normally when you have nude scenes, it's to titillate or to, it's a sex scene, or it's they're meant to look sexy. Um, but uh, there it's just, um, it's just nudity divorced from sex. It's just the nudity of the everyday. Later on, she'll jump in the shower, and we'll see that kind of nudity again. Um and so it's, I think it, I think it really did disturb some men. I, I read a couple blog posts about it uh, who found it disturbing. I think the reason is they're used to sexist nude scenes where, uh, and, and they like sexist nude scenes, but here the nudity is actually divorced from sex. And it's the reality of what women of different ages look like when they shower. And it's, like I said, it's not that big a deal. So here's the famous martini scene. Uh, According to the production notes, this is the first day of shooting. Um, First thing on the call sheet, I think. Uh, I I don't know that. I don't know that it was the first thing on the call sheet. But um, evidently she didn't have Williams and Kirby rehearse this. Um, She just had them come in and do it. It would be a cool thing to rehearse to see the different ways you could do it, but... 
And I think Williams, and again, Luke Kirby is very good, you know. Um, I know men who are handsome, you know, <clears throat> who are really, hand, like, um, uh, you know, men who are handsome in ways that um, everywhere they go, women notice how handsome they are. You know? uh, and men who've been handsome the way Luke Kirby is here, his, men who've been handsome like that their whole life, they know how to work that thing the same way some women who are particularly striking, um, just many of them learn how to work that thing. And what I mean is they know how to affect the other gender. They know how to, um, a, a particularly handsome man who is, um, uh, who, to whom women are, uh, attracted to, uh, reliably, um, sort of knows how to work that thing, knows how to look at a woman, knows how to flirt in a way, you know, uh, that is, you know, knows when to rein it in, knows when to not go for it. And so I, she's so funny here. She's funny without being, you know, over the top. Um, but I think Luke Kirby has clearly been one of those men his whole life who, you know, women are attracted to doing. So he knows how to look at her here. I don't, <laughs> she, she mouths over. so it's it's great it's a great idea for a scene and again you notice that the whole thing with um fantasy and the idea of sexual fantasies and um uh they're very different i'm not a clinician but uh or a psychotherapist but it seems to me their fantasies function very differently for men and women um uh, heterosexual women, heterosexual. I mean, women seem uh, much more interested in uh, more comprehensive fantasies, like like the one she's asked for here, where men are just interested in fantasies of things they you know they would like to do. And here it seems like Margot wants this fantasy. I mean, she says at the end of this conversation. Uh, well, that's fine because none, nothing that we just discussed is ever going to, since nothing that we just discussed is actually going to happen, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, so she's interested as a, not as a woman, but she's interested in a fantasy that kind of will substitute for actually having to cheat on her husband. I, I mean, she has to play someone who's becoming extremely sexually aroused and doesn't like that she's becoming sexually aroused, but can't help it in this scene. It's a much easier scene, I think. It's not easy, but it's much easier for Luke Kirby, who just ha just kind of has to not look stupid saying these things. Uh, I had an idiot friend who, um, you'll like this story, uh, Jackie. Uh, <laughs> uh, you don't know this person, but I had a friend um, who saw this movie. She's so, she, ah, what a great actress. Uh, I had a friend who saw this movie, um, Young Man. And he said, uh, well, I really like that scene, uh, you know, the martini scene, because now I know I'll say now I know what to say to a woman to make her get worked up because I'll just say what the Luke Kirby character says. You know, I'll just that that whole fantasy and uh, it actually gets kind of pornographic at the end. But but this guy, you know, this kid's like, oh, I'll, I'll just say that that that's that. So that's going to work. I couldn't resist. I had to set him straight. <laughs> what are the problems with that? Well, first of all. Um, I mean, the idea that, I mean, his whole thing was, yeah, I mean, like it'll be a pickup line, like he'll just walk up to a woman at a, at a bar and say this, um, here's the, I love that they never drink the martinis too. Uh, here's the thing, right? 
Uh, first problem with that is there's certain things that he just didn't notice because he was too distracted by the sexuality, right? The first thing he didn't notice is that the Luke Car- Kirby character is not saying all this sexy, stu- sexy stuff to, to Margot as a pickup line, right? She already likes him. Uh, I I made you laugh. She already fucking likes him, right? That's key. So this stuff that he says there is not not, uh, making her like him. Uh, She already likes him. She's here having a drink with him because she likes him. Number two, uh, perhaps this should have been number one. And this is the part that this guy, and, and it shut him down too. He stopped because he was half serious saying this, and it, it, I, I was impressed with myself because I shut him down because I, because he knew he, he knew how wrong he was. Like as a, the second thing you're forgetting is that, watch. I told him watch that scene again, okay? So she's there because she likes him. So already she likes him. She asks him to describe what he would do to her sexually. She asks him for that description. She requests it. He doesn't just blurt it out. He doesn't force it upon her. He doesn't proposition her and say, hey, wouldn't it be great if I described, you know, fucking you? Uh, She asks for it. And he obliges. Um, Once again, you know, it helps that it's probably something that happens to more attractive men than less attractive men. Uh, (laughs) But, you know... um, it's just funny. And I, I like the whole little setup in that line or in that scene of Margot saying, well, what about, I mean, she, she probably knows that the average marriage lasts something like, I think 10 years, is it? Or around that. Um, so she says, she figures she'll be married to Lou for 20 years or something. She says, well, what about in 30 years when I'm 58? Uh, will you, will you, you know, can we meet at this place? You know, and it's, it's a little conceit in the movie that I actually like. I don't think that's heavy. I, I think it gives the movie a nice um, sense of people thinking about their lives in terms of long spans of time. And uh, I don't think you see that very much in the sort of idiotic Katherine Heigl rom-coms. You know, I pick on Katherine Heigl a lot. But... Um, uh, because she's made awful, awful, awful movies, um, uh, and despite being a good actress. And, uh, oh, and there was that movie, Something Borrowed, where Jennifer Goodwin steals Kate Hudson's boyfriend or fiancé. Um, and that was like, the characters are just kind of stupid. And, you know, um, here, you know, it's nice that Margot's thinking about things long term, you know, Polly is really smart about movies. Uh, in the special features, she mentioned um, that one of the inspirations for some of the scenes in, in Take This Waltz was uh, Two for the Road. The uh, I don't know if you've seen this, uh, Jackie. The um, It's a Stanley Donnan movie. Stanley Donnan, of course, who um, did Singing in the Rain with Gene Kelly, co-directed it, uh, legendary filmmaker and choreographer. Um uh, Two for the Road has Albert Finney and, and uh, a romantic movie with Albert Finney and Audrey Hepburn. And uh, there are some great scenes in it. And and, um, 
and, and Polly was inspired by one of the restaurant scenes. And just the fact that she knows two for the road, right? Just the fact that she accepts that one of the great romantic movies ever takes it as a touchstone. Um, it, it was a is a really encouraging thing. You know, I, I think she's in terms of the young directors. I mean, I don't think there's anybody smarter than I mean, if you listen to her speak and, and I don't think there's anybody smarter than Sarah Polly, uh, just in terms of intellect and, um, incredibly impressive person. If she never, if she never made a film and never acted in a movie, um, she'd be an incredibly impressive, uh, person. I don't know how old she is. I think mid thirties. I was just asked how old she is. I'm going to get you mic'd up. <laughs> I know. Okay. So that scene that just passed, I spoke over it, um, talking about Stanley Donnan. But um, Margot says to Lou, it takes all of my courage to seduce you. And you teach me to be totally and utterly without, I think, uh, without... Uh, courage i think uh, it takes all of my something to seduce you and you teach me to be totally and utterly without courage and i like the scene because it's a very common scene in relationships where she just she's talking crazy talk from his point of view and he just doesn't know what the fuck she's what the fuck is wrong with her it's like he's it's like someone kidnapped his wife and and put an alien in her place like body snatcher style um this is lit very nicely this evening scene it almost looks like a studio like like a soundstage right like where they shot close encounters uh but yeah it's very um it's very kind of i mean you read that on the page and it it sounds i mean coming even from coming for coming out of the mouth of a great actress like uh michelle williams that line you teach me to be totally and utterly without courage i mean the whole point is that it's over it's hyperbole and lou is reacting to it like you know what is this hyperbole are you crazy but i just think it's it sounds too much like bad writing i I know it's one of those notes i would have given polly you know i know the point of the scene is that she's being hyperbolic in this way that um both men and women in relationships can be sometimes you know it takes all of my courage but um I don't know. It, it's too easy for people to mistake it for bad writing in the movie. You know, I don't. I don't think that that scene actually comes off as nicely as it should in the movie. Like, it's one of those things. I see what she's going for, but I don't think it's as successful as. So this is a very nice, very very nicely shot underwater stuff here that they're doing with the two actors, and um, this is it, it has the effect of actually opening up the movie. Uh, in the, in the, uh, uh, so to speak, you know, the way they say you have to open up a picture, you have to, you know, take it to different locations. And, um, but it, it adds this sense of enchantment. Um, and once again, I think the, the score, the music, musical score that you're hearing there, uh, if you're listening to the audio of it, um, is kind of this weird, it suggests enchantment, but I, I just think it's wrong. It's right. It doesn't sound right to me. Um, this kind of dolphin seduction that they're doing underwater without actually touching each other is all very nicely photographed. And, you know, to get actors who can they, like see that those shots of them, these close ups of them underwater, I mean, 
to get an actor to who's able to do that first of all it's not just about being able to swim you have to hit your mark under fucking water um you know and it looks like they're in about seven feet of water or something but i like that the intimacy they're sharing is is pretty you know i mean she went out to for a swim to and, and ends up rendezvousing with their handsome neighbor and that's already sort of a breach of the trust lou has you know the the marital trust but um then she reacts you know like this to him simply touching her leg um underwater so once again right like the the nervous indecision that she has to play um she she wants to go there she almost goes there but she ends up deciding against it just she does this throughout the movie and a lesser actress isn't you know, isn't going to be, we're not going to be buying it the way we buy it with Margot with Michelle Williams. And I actually think that this was a good movie because of her. Um, as good as Polly is, I don't think you can have Megan Fox do this role. Uh, it just, you need someone who brings this kind of intellect to a leading performance in a movie. Um, you need a, a Chastain or a Michelle Williams, um, you know, and, and there are all kinds of opportunities for her to ham it up, which she declines to do. You know, she's always, I like how she, she often where other people, other actors would go for something not bombastic, but would, would go for a would stretch to hit a high note. I think she, she goes for the understated uh, a lot. Chastain, too. So I haven't said anything about Seth Rogen. Um, to me, his best work is in The 40-Year-Old Virgin. <clears throat> as uh, you know a, a role that would get him typecast as the wild friend oh he was good in 50 50 too with joseph gordon levitt as the wild sort of kooky friend but in 40 year old virgin he sort of um he has this shaggy goatee and um and is talking about you know i'm trying to figure out how much pot i can actually smoke you know how how much is it possible for me to actually smoke but you know he's doing the it, it, very realistic character and um but i think you know where he doesn't have to, parts where he doesn't have to um where he can be funny in a way that sort of keeps him as a, in his own skin is sort of where he's at his best um he's not uh you know I think this part of Lou would have been interesting with someone who was not so much like Shrek. Um, <laughs> you laughing at Seth Rogen looking like Shrek? Uh, someone who is not um, so oafish. Someone who is maybe as handsome as Luke Kirby, right? Because one thing that the movie does that I don't think really comes through enough is that she's in love with Lou. She's attracted to Lou. She loves him. And she has this sort of familiar rapport. 
very different from the rapport she has with Daniel. With Daniel, it's very serious, you know, and they talk about, they had that heart to heart about his art in his apartment and her ambitions. And, and with Lou, it's all sort of these fun and games, these sort of playful things. But you see, she's lays down with him here. She, she loves him too, you know. She's in love with him. It's just they don't have that spark like when you're first falling in love. And that is really the fundamental anxiety for men and women that's being um, displayed in this movie, right? Is um, being scared of, or, or, or the you know, this realization that I've signed up to be with this person, you know, either in a committed relationship indefinitely or in a marriage, you know, uh, supposedly forever. Um, that means I'm never going to experience falling in love again, even though I'm young and clearly capable of it. And so when the prospect of actually having that bliss again, and, you know, it's very tempting and it's soul crushing (laughs) for Margot. Um, this scene kind of is almost unnecessary, most of it. Um, but it's soul, it's just uh, soul crushing for Margot. Um, and it's not just about sex and romance. That's what I like about the movie too. I sort of touched on this earlier. She, you know, Daniel represents her achieving her full potential, not just as a lover and as someone capable of falling in love, but achieving her full potential as a writer too, as, as someone who wants to do other things in her life and is kind of in this stasis in her marriage to Lou, you know, things have kind of settled down into this stasis. And um, Daniel is not quite a free spirit, despite his rickshaw here, but um, he represents her taking a chance on herself. And that's a, a attractive proposition, but also, also a scary one, right? Let me move my mic here, sorry. <clears throat> my birthstone is a 17-inch MacBook. That's pretty funny. See, that's pretty funny. I like that we get this backstory on her marriage because he asks her. That's very realistic, too. And it's a good screenwriting move, right? You just, you know, it doesn't seem like an information dump. If you have a character ask the question, and that character is totally motivated uh, in terms of realism, the realism you're going for in the movie anyway. You know, there's uh, Luke Kirby's character, Daniel, has every reason to ask Margot that question. He's a really good cook if you like chicken. There you go. Yeah, see, I think though, when it's in food form, I think that, I think that's, um, I still think the chicken thing is very clever, right? I think, um, as good an actress as she is, I think she kind of overdoes the nervousness here. I think someone in her position would find it a little easier to be comfortable, uh, especially because nothing has really happened between them, uh, between her and Daniel, right? Um, I mean, he's dirty, talked her, they went swimming together, but she didn't blow him, you know. The whole thing of Daniel being the one who takes them to their anniversary dinner 
and sort of doing it in this smug way is um, pretty cool, I think. <laughs> you know, it works for me. I, I, I believe that he would do that. He's very... Um, once again, he's he he has nothing to lose here. It's I mean, she's got a marriage to lose, but he wants her, and he's not guilty of anything actionable, if that makes any sense. He hasn't kissed her. I mean, she wanted to make an appointment to kiss him in thirty years, but he hasn't kissed her or fucked her or um, I, they haven't even you know her his numbers probably not in her phone you know i mean um they've just had shared intimacy that she feels guilty about but uh i love that because in the hollywood movie this would come after they're already fucking yeah i mean that's the thing that that's why take this waltz is so different um it's all about the affair in the hollywood version of romantic comedies where there's love triangles or romantic movies uh you know it's all about the deed and the fallout you know it's all it's fatal attraction it's it's uh uh what is that movie with um kate hudson um something borrowed right it's all about um stealing the other girl's boyfriend uh Seth Rogen is um, not very good in this scene, I don't think. I think he's a little bit too... The point here is he's clueless, right? I mean, he has that line, Oh, Margot told you about... Oh, he has no reason to be suspicious or nervous. I mean, the whole point of his character for a good part of this is that he's fucking clueless. He doesn't... He's oblivious to what's going on and, and the relationship that she has with Daniel, the previously existing relationship. So... I think his line reading there is kind of weird. He goes, oh, she, but, like in a nervous way, he gives the line. Well, why would he be nervous? He should be like, I, I would think the character would be like, oh, she, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I want to I, I want to get another opinion on my Marcella, um, if that makes sense. What are they eating there? Fruit salad? Now, these, this whole thing of her trying to relate to Lou... And Lou kind of being a dick in this scene and being like, well, we've been married five years. I know everything about you already. And of course he doesn't. I mean, the irony I get, but I think it's kind of cooler if at first Lou's like this in the movie. Because ultimately he this doesn't happen in the movie, but isn't it kind of cooler if Lou's like, well, you know, he, he kind of, know, he, he says, I know everything about you already. Yeah, see, I'm not going to say something just for the sake of us feeling like we're having conversation is what he just said. And to me, it would have been more interesting if he, if at first he, he says that and he gets this negative reaction from his wife and, and he, and he maybe picks up on the fact, not on the affair, but he, he, it'd be really interesting if he picked up on the fact that she's drifting away from him a little bit. And she's not feeling a spark to their relationship anymore. Here they are in their anniversary, you know. And maybe he tries to not seduce her, but fall in love with her again. Uh, or or treat her as if like they behave like they did when they first started up together. And maybe she finds herself 
not swept away, but falling in love with Lou again because he's noticed that she has this need. And, you know, it and then it raises the stakes of her dilemma. You know, now it's not just Lou is not just willing to work on the marriage, but she's actually falling in love with two men at the same time, which is a a trope that many movies have uh, explored. But I just think that would be a good thing for like the third act of a movie like this, you know, um, not the third act of this movie is sort of her drifting away and finally leaving Lou. But I don't know. I, I, I wonder why Polly didn't do that where, you know, Lou's such a good guy and so undeserving of the anguish he's going to be going through, um, that he actually starts working on the marriage and starts. And, and so she finds herself falling in love with both of them. Uh, obviously in a very different way for her husband with respect to her husband um, and then it makes the choice unbearable uh, we have a whole new reason to reassess the Lou character and that would call I think my rewrite there would call for a better actor to play Lou you know I mean she's so gorgeous michelle williams like uh, the lou should be a little better looking i think lou I, I think that's one of the problems i had with the movie is that lou lou doesn't lou's not a punchline i mean and seth rogan can act you know i don't mean he's a punchline but um we we're we don't take him as seriously as we take daniel as a as a lover as a as a suitor for Margot here yeah see we believe Margot right there when she says i love him but I don't know. I feel like, you know, who's a, who's a handsome actor that could have played Lou? Jackie. Who's a handsome actor that could have played Lou instead of Seth Rogen? Because I, I don't like that casting at all. And we've sort of, and Sarah Silverman has kind of gone away from the movie here for a while, right? This photography is a little too i mean this is looks like magic hour it's a little too perfect with the colors behind him right it actually looks like a matte painting <laughs> it's how perfect the color i mean we're watching this on a big old screen and i remember in the theater thinking it was a digital um uh, digital um projection and i remember thinking oh that's just a little too perfect like like that this looks like they're sitting in a in a drawing this stuff with the they're eating uh, whatever the fuck they're eating there. I have no idea. Canada might be poutine, right? Poutine uh, is French fries with cheese curds. So once again, like they're presumably in their neighborhood or close to their neighborhood, and she's just sort of having this lovey-dovey picnic with the guy who lives across the street from her while her husband's at home, you know, um, uh, stirring his catchatory. <laughs> she looks like, uh, in that skirt, she looks like Ginger Rogers a little bit when Ginger Rogers would wear short skirts like that. So we have, we're setting up the end of the movie here, which I really like the way Polly handled it. Um, 
it's not the idea of being on a merry-go-round. This is not a merry-go-round, by the way. A proper merry-go-round would have horses and and uh, and different kinds of um, what do you call them? Not buggies, but little the little boxes and carts and sleighs that um, that the kids sit in. And I and and also it's indoors first of all, but also the fact that um, there are just as many adults riding this as as kids. <laughs> I think they probably use the well I don't want to say I don't know that but this seems like something they would use the DSLR for too um, this stuff where they're right on the I mean they're clearly the actors are on this ride as the ride is going around with extras riding the ride too and so you you've got the camera you're probably going to have your camera rigged one in front and then you're going to do the the singles uh, on either side of the actors so it would be a really easy rig if all you had to rig was a Canon a little Canon uh, DSLR I think it's called Canon SLR1 the exact camera that they used but I mean you're talking I mean it's probably one of those 24 megapixel you know um, really nice consumer grade um, cameras that, I mean I, on mine I've never taken HD video with it I've only ever used it for still pictures but this is a really nice cut where all of a sudden the ride's over and they kind of it's funny that they, they put the ugly lights on you know or oh the ride's not over right it's fucked up yeah that's what it was <laughs> yeah, she's got like pencil legs, Michelle Williams, and the, and so did Ginger Rogers. It's not it's not um, Footlight Parade. It's uh, one of those early Rogers movies before um, Flying Down to Rio, where she uh, you see her in a really short skirt tap dancing, and she had. Uh, I mean, they weren't pencil legs. That's that's mean. They were um, really. She had really muscular legs because she was a dancer. Since she was, you know, knee high to a grasshopper. Now this is really um, at this point the public screening. I mean, people that I went to, people were just, and and he has apparently the same color pillows that she has at home. Um, People were pulling their hair out and yelling at the screen at the public screening I went to. It was a sneak screening, and uh, I think it was a sneak. Because they were so annoyed that she didn't just fuck them already. I mean, I feel like they'd been conditioned on Hollywood movies where, you know, in the Hollywood version, they already fucked, got caught, you know. And he he's kind of a dick, too. He He puts it on her you know it's for you it's you it it's for you to do something so she i like the idea um of her carrying on this way like getting into his bed and he doesn't get in i mean her making these decisions almost as out of body experiences right 
She doesn't go in his apartment and get in his bed because she's drunk. She doesn't, um, she doesn't go swimming with him because she's crazy. It's just kind of this unconscious out of body experience where she, she's just kind of floating along and she makes the choice and it's almost like she gives in to the, the, her subconscious by making these choices. And then she has this lucid interval in the moments after the minutes after she's made the choice where she has this uh, lucid interval where she realizes that she's allowed her what I'm calling her subconscious to make the choice. Right. And, and, and so she reels it in here. It comes out in the form of, of crying, a crying fit. You know, she, she starts crying because she's, and she, she's riddled with this guilt about wanting to do something that she hasn't done. Um, I mean, obviously she's sharing a kind of intimacy with this guy that is um, a little bit of um, a breach of trust, but you wouldn't want your wife, you know, sharing that kind of intimacy. But, but um, she hasn't, like I said, she hasn't done anything actionable yet, but yet she's teared up, she's torn up with this guilt and this anguish and this not knowing what to do and not knowing how to feel about you know, the stuff she's already gone, the stuff she's already done. Um, again, she has to play for the whole movie, but I just, I adore that sort of storytelling, um, element of, um, she's just constant. It's constantly this reoccurring thing where I I could see why I think I read a couple of reviews where uh, other critics were like, just didn't dig it. Just didn't dig the fact that the same scene kind of keeps playing out where she's, she's almost going to sleep with him or kiss him or something and doesn't. Um, but I, it happens a different way each time, you know. So they amuse each other in a way that sort of is their intimacy, her and Lou. And they the way she relates to him is their in, is their intimacy is the manifestation of their of their love and then the way she relates to Daniel in this much more serious sort of heart to heart way um, is their intimacy so we're coming up on, uh, here's Sarah Silverman coming back into the movie now. Um, this speech she gives is funny, uh, but let me move this. Her, um, we're coming up on kind of the way the movie uses her, not quite as a, a Yoda, but as a, as someone who's going to tell Margot that, you know, life just has these gaps in it. You, sometimes you yearn and you think that falling in love with and running off with some guy or in my case, this is her character talking, or in my case, you know, I'm paraphrasing, or in my case, booze, uh, you think that it's going to fill those gaps and, and make you feel good. But uh, there's always the gaps. And because I'm older or I've been through more, I, I know that. I know that there's always these gaps. And... Um, and so she essentially, or the, the film, essentially says that, the ethos of the film says that 
infidelity or not even infidelity, just falling in love, falling in love with, um, anybody, you know, the act of falling in love or is akin to, um, alcoholism uh, that because they're both just us trying to, or, or infidelity, you know, it's, it's, it's just us trying to fill these gaps and, and quell our yearning and, and we never can. Um, I just, I think that's actually reductive and kind of simple minded, <laughs> you know, um, what we know about, you know, the data, the scientific data about what alcoholism is, what addiction is as a, a medical, you know, people are often genetically predisposed toward certain illnesses, addiction being one of them. And, uh, the way it, the way it operates in the brain is very different from the way someone wanting to fall in love with someone else operates in the brain. You know, it's apples and oranges. And the movie just says, well, this is all of a piece. You know, this is all, this is all just bad shit we do. You know, I think what makes people, what makes that make sense to people is that they're both things that you feel guilty about, you know. You get drunk and embarrass your family, and like Geraldine does, and she feels guilty about it. And Margot falls in love with this guy who is not her husband, and she feels guilty about it. I don't know. So, oh, that's what they... You're not old enough. Um, that's what they used to say back... I, they probably stopped saying it back in, in the 70s, I guess. Um... At least that's when I remember, like, Time Magazine stopped printing it this way. But when, like, a senator or a, a famous person was caught in having an affair with, you know, when one of the Kennedys or something was caught cheating on his wife, they would never write, um, you know, he was driving through Chappaquiddick with his mistress or he was driving with um, his uh, a woman that he was having a sexual relationship with uh, like New York Times they would always write it as um, Senator Kennedy was seen that night with a woman uh, Mary Jo Kopechny uh, with Mary Jo Kopechny a woman who was not his wife that's the way they would write it. <laughs> he was seen with a woman who was not his wife. <laughs> Which is not saying that he was seen with a mistress or someone that he was sleeping with. They, they phrase it in a way where a woman who is not his wife is every other woman, every, is any woman in the world. You know, technically his granddaughter would be a woman who is the female who is not his wife, right? I just always get a kick out of that wording. But anyway. The Daniel character doesn't make sense. And a lot of things he does doesn't make sense. His coming to this party, um, even though Lou graciously invites him, and it's another sign of his utter being oblivious, but... Um, I mean, you've got, you've got no scene if he doesn't come to the party, but, you know. The whole thing with Geraldine is that 
uh, the, the Sarah Silverman character is that she's onto them and, um, or, or she's suspicious because, you know, this guy was sitting at the pool when they were at their jazzercise class or their water size class or whatever, um, which was highly suspicious. You'd think every woman in the class would be like, hey, who's that handsome guy watching, you know, sitting there eating Cheetos? So it's very strange. You'd, th you'd think they'd make a big deal out of it, right? The postcard thing, or the whole thing of in 30 years is very sort of Nicholas Sparks. And I don't, I like it as a conceit in the movie, but I think at this point the movie's leaning on it a little too much. And, and with the scene that comes later, of course, it's really going to to lean on it good so it's hard it's hard to believe that she would you know I like how he finds out too how he puts it together you know poor Lou Sarah Polly's uh, movie away from her um I thought was much better the characters were much better written <laughs> so I think this would be an example of like you know visual storytelling we love it we love when you don't when you don't need to use dialogue to express certain things but here I feel like this might be an example of a screenwriter who's kind of stuck and just, um, I mean, I think Sarah Polly did a great job with the screenplay. I'm just saying that I've thought about these things a lot. And when they pop up in movies, I, I think about them. And, you know, she doesn't give us any dialogue here. She doesn't give us, you know, it's just her returning and, and him not reacting. And it really does seem to me that she may have been just plain stuck. You know, how do you, how do, how do you express it? You know, um, and, and also they're highly verbal, both, you know, both of your characters are, you know, when something's on their mind about the other person, they say it, you know. So this kind of is another one of the tropes, I think, um, of, you know, it's almost mocking other romantic movies or romantic comedies, the shot of her dream, evidently, of her older self uh, meeting him, rendezvousing at that lighthouse. Shots like that are the trope. Uh, that, the, you know, that the, again, the movie hopscotches over some of them and uh, mocks a couple of them and So here again, I think, you know, we have the shot of the fan, you know, but I'm sure I didn't mean screen, I didn't mean um, before I said screenwriter being stuck. I'm sure she had a scene written, I, but the movie skips over. I mean, just uh, in terms of how you're cutting your movie together, I think, you know, 
clearly that fan oscillating skips over a conversation that was had, right? And we're getting uh, just them sitting up in the bed, and now we're getting this cut up, so we're seeing all these reaction moments from Seth Rogen instead of just a pithy uh, conversation. It's another directorial move that Polly does that I think is inspired, but just doesn't work for me as well as a really well-written, extremely pithy, you know, I mean a really short little back and forth that they could, they could have where she says, this is what happens. And, and then you could also let Michelle Williams loose, you know, you can let her have a, have a real moment where, you know, this is what happened and I'm torn up about it and... But instead, we're getting all of these, we're getting Seth Rogen's, you know, be real. I mean, or, or, or I mean his, uh, his outtake reel, right? He seems to be reacting to different things that she's saying, right? But the movie cuts it together and presents it like this where, he's reacting to the same thing that there was this relationship, uh, this intimacy she shared with Daniel. It is cool that we get him that, or that we get the, he says, if I beg you to set to stay, uh, so it is kind of cool that we learn that the, there's now the prospect of her leaving and following and going after Daniel, um, which is a little new. So their, their affair um, was chased, right? And, and this, this cutting, uh, this stuff, the way it's cut together, uh, these reaction shots of Rogan, it just goes on too long, too. But... Um, Yeah, you see, it just this isn't a, this isn't like screenwriter being stuck. This is like you know she didn't want to use the she didn't want to use the scene she'd written. To which I would think, you know, you you write a nice sh- that that's a a trick um, for filmmaking too um, that a. <clears throat> professor of mine used to tell us about um, if you have a situation where you're kind of stuck in a scene or or you don't think it's working quite right uh, write the shortest version of that scene possible you know what it, it, first that helps you crystallize what the real point of the scene is and you know write the shortest version of that scene possible you know um, Maybe it's each character in a two-character scene. Maybe it's each character having like two lines, right? Um, and then just run it that way and and cut it into your movie and see how it works or cut it into your screenplay and edit it in and see how it works, see how it sounds. Write the shortest version of it possible. And you sometimes see movies do that, you know. Um, but with the with that series of reaction shots of Lou, it's just like, It, it, 
it doesn't jibe with the way the movie's been behaving so far, which is we've seen them having conversations and we've been seeing things through Margot's eyes, right? And um, and then all of a sudden we have we we we're not getting the information she's getting which is the substance of the conversation and the things she was saying to him you know um you know it's like when to leave things in a story mysterious and when to when to be explicit you know leaving something mysterious or and and mysterious is different from ambiguous right leaving something mysterious can work but you know i think we needed to see that conversation and, and the shortest version of it possible so there and it, it, it's, again, it's an example of a directorial move that Polly does that is just totally, um, you know, clever and, and it takes skill to put that together and have it work in the movie to the extent that it does work for me in the movie. It, it's not, it's not awful, but it's quite, you know, it's a very deliberate directorial move. And I think Polly's at her best when she's just... Um, especially in Away From Her, where she's just uh, one of those fly-on-the-wall directors where she gives us a scene between a couple characters or three characters, and it's sort of like that shower scene in this movie with the women. Um, she's, we're just, it's kind of a fly-on-the-wall thing. And I find that she, she um, whoops, sorry. I find that she directs those scenes really well. And, you know, when she's trying to do something really stylistic, like walking down the airport corridor, like those reaction shots of Lou, like the beautiful 360 camera maneuver we have at the end. I find that it just, it's out of step with the fly on the wall stuff that we've been getting before, you know. The, the movie has certain visual, um, this always reminds me of the end of Barton Fink. Um, certain visual um, things like Margot sitting inside, Lou outside, and them relating through the window, you know. Um, it has certain visual uh, elements that it returns to. And I think that's much better than the deliberate moves. So here we go. We have the Leonard Cohen song. So who are the Canadians here? I don't think Michelle Williams is. Uh, Seth Rogen is. Silverman's not. I don't know about Luke Kirby. Uh, I believe most of the crew is. Uh, I know the DP is. I know Polly herself is. I know they shot in Toronto, mostly. That's how the Canadians say it, right? They don't say the T at the end. They say Toronto. I think the aesthetics of Take the Swaltz art, the movie, uh, are a lot like Leonard Cohen. I'm going somewhere with this. You either like his music or you don't. You either like his approach to singing a song or you don't. This is, I mean, this is really well done, this sex scene. Uh, and it allows... Polly to show the passage of time because now 
the movie's going to skip over a lot of time and skip ahead in time. Uh, and we have to get the point of it all. Now, here's the where it goes hardcore, right? It's almost like I don't think we need the pillars to do these transitions that she's doing. Um, we could do we could do it some other way, especially with you know a 360 camera move. You can yeah. the threesome thing got like a laugh in the in the uh, theater when I saw it. And got a laugh from someone uh, that I watched it with on home video, too. Um, and I don't know that it's supposed to, you know. So what do they call those threesomes where you have a man, two men and a woman, or two women and one man? Are, they, are those different kinds of threesomes? I'm looking at you, Jackie. <laughs> I like I love the Christmas lights. You know, the, it's the holidays, so they put the holiday lights up, right? While they have all these sexual experiences. But the passage of time, I mean, as an idea for a shot, this is really great, you know. I'm going to praise it now. Um, we have to see the passage of time, and so the bed is replaced with a coffee table, and now she's sitting with her eyeglasses on, on the couch, watching the tube, the way she did with Lou when they were eating their TV dinners or their dinner. They weren't TV dinners. Lou was a chef. When they were eating in front of the, in front of the TV, right? Um, so that, that bed where they were having all those wild threesomes, or at least two wild threesomes, that bed has now been replaced with a coffee table um, <laughs> that has a, a checkered tablecloth on it. it doesn't even, it's not even a coffee table. It's like, it's like some sort of metal chest. It's like the thing Robert Shaw kept the uh, uh, kept his uh, his rifle in in Jaws, <laughs> or, or the rope. He kept he keeps a rope in a big big iron thing, and you know how to tie a knot, Mister Hooper. And uh, and then uh, Richard Dreyfus says, "You didn't say how short you want it, or how long you wanted it." I actually think this is a little too on the nose where she's the brushing of the teeth and the, this moments of domesticity, the brushing of the teeth and the, and the, and the pissing in front of your partner as just as she did with Lou. So I mean, I guess you have to do it in a movie like this. So I don't know if it's too on the nose. It's just, I find the movie has a lot of moments that are on the screen or a handful of moments that are on the screen for a good amount of time and you don't need them to be on the screen but for a moment, you know. Um, you just need to get it and get out. It's very funny that the, in terms of um, one of the things that Polly does really well. The, the movie runs, or the rather, the relationship between Margot and Daniel runs its course. Uh, you know, they that bliss, and then at the beginning, then that uh, that period of sexual exploration with 
third partners, you know, and then uh, that period of just staid domesticity where they're brushing their teeth. And so I love that it runs its course faster than um, her five-year marriage to Lou seemed to have run its course, right? Or maybe not, but I mean, it seemed to run its course faster. So she gets the call because we've had it set up early in the movie, which is very nice. I mean, the movie did it for this reason. I praised it for the decision to show that she's bonded to Lou's family. Um, I, uh, I think the movie does it exclusively for this reason, because she's going to get the call here later on when Geraldine goes missing. So she was really bonded to that kid before, right? And the kid enjoyed being carried by her. And now the kid says, I'm going to go bye-bye now. Maybe she's got, like, you know, the smell of all those threesomes on her. (laughs) Well, he didn't call the real police. He called the Canadian police, right? (laughs) Go ahead and write in. Now, this idea of um, an alcoholic's own family calling the cops on them. is uh, something that when I was at the screening, I was talking to people afterwards, which is, I like to do that. I like to just see what people, anybody who was at the screening, see what they're saying and what they thought. Um, It's really cool. Um, And people felt like, would her own husband really want her to go? Wouldn't, Wouldn't the scene be better if they said, no, 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 we can take care of her. She's okay. She's okay. It's like, no. And you, I find maybe those people have never, maybe people who think that have never really experienced life being friends or related to someone or caring, caring about someone who's a very severe addict. Um, it's the, sometimes it's the best of a list of bad options to just have them not incarcerated, but, um, have them processed by the police for doing something um, because then you know they're going back to rehab or something can be court ordered and become become part of their you know so the the fact that she's drunk here allows her to dress dress down Margot right See, here it comes. This is this is bullshit, what her character says. I mean, I... No, it's bullshit. She says, we're, she said a minute ago, we're doing... A moment ago, she said, we're, we're doing the same... Th- we're doing the same thing here, you and I. You know, we're not so very different, you and I. You know, so that's kind of... Life has a gap in it. It just does, she says. Um, 
and you, you try to fill it, but uh, that's bullshit. That you're an alcoholic. You're ill. She did it. She uh, Margot did a. Um, you could, depending on your value system, you you might say you know she did a bad thing. She um, was to a certain extent dishonest with her partner, her spouse. She um, uh, left him for another man. And she did a bad thing, which she felt horribly about, by the way. And um, that's not the same as being ill. That's, uh, you know, someone did uh, did a bad thing that they feel horribly about. And um, the idea that that's the same as being ill, that that's the same phenomenon, that that's the same sort of someone filling, you know, life just has a gap and you try to fill it with, threesomes or alcohol you know we're not so different no they're different things and um even even as a device in a movie even as a device that uh helps a movie explore the thematic interest that it's um exploring i find that to be facile and stupid and a a miseducation of people about you know, the science about concerning what we really know about addiction, what we really know about the brain. You know, it's sort of um, that really reductive kind of philosophy, philosophizing that you get on Oprah, but it doesn't really help you understand either addiction or infidelity. It just throws them in the same box and and passes that that um, uh, that clumping them together, it passes that off as wisdom. And I'm only saying this because it's clear that the movie, as its ethos, believes that, you know. It, it transitions into this very cool scene where they have that talk that exes have, you know, so how are you doing? Do you mean am I seeing anyone? <laughs> and it and it ends at a place that in other movies it it would end differently. You know they would express, um, they would have some sort of quasi romantic expression of their love for each other or devotion. Um, and here it's sort of one sided. You know Lou is clearly pining for her. And loves her in a way that she has moved on from. Yeah, his his line readings here in this scene, uh, Rogan, you know, I mean, I feel like Michelle Williams is Michelle. I mean, she's really in the moment here. She's reacting. She's, um, and she's having to play a scene here with someone who's doing very, um, <clears throat> and she was very complimentary to Seth Rogen in the in the interviews that she did on the DVD, but um, it, his line readings just sound like line readings here, you know? Like, they don't sound like a character who's living that moment. They sound like someone who has um, decided ahead of time he's going to do the line reading this way. <clears throat> By the way, that that's a talent that he has for, I mean, he, he it doesn't look um, 
horrible. You know, it's not it's not hacky, but it's a it, his his talent. Um, it, it better it's better in comedies. See that. That's a that's I always thought this was a sweet moment um, where he says, you know, their cutesy thing where he says, I'd like to gouge your eye out with melon baller. And she says, me, too. Um, there's two ways you could do that, um, that payoff there. It's a nice setup and payoff, too. But um, you could do it where he says that in a different with a different line reading. And <laughs> her car's still back there. And it's clear that he means it like I'd like to you broke my heart I would like to gouge your eye and that's the kind of things you think about someone when they've broken your heart you know here's our payoff of the beginning too that's kinds of those are the kinds of things you think about someone when they've broken your heart you know I, I'd, I'd like to you know uh, ram a busted light bulb up her ass you know or something like that and uh, <laughs> that's normal right normal thought to have but um but he doesn't play it like that. He plays it like, oh, we can have this little moment and it'll be humor. So he gives the line reading like, I'd like to gouge your eye out with a, I bought a new melon bar. I'd like to gouge your eye out. You know, and, and it's maybe we can have this cutesy little moment like we used to. And she says, me too. <laughs> she hates herself. Um, and, and probably a lot at that moment because Geraldine just made her feel even more guilty than she feels. It'd be interesting because she said she hasn't. She was surprised. She was surprised to see the Michelle Williams character, and it's like, um, maybe it's more interesting if if they were even closer than they were, because you could write the movie in a way where Geraldine is like a friend to her, you know, uh, more of a friend to her. But I, 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 look, I don't object to the story. I'm just saying. This is my favorite shot in the movie. Uh, the, the sort of close here where Margot is... Uh, and, you know, again, a lo- uh, you don't have an actress this good. She doesn't do it. I mean, it's not hard to get... to. It's hard to miss the symbolism, right? I mean, she's on, she's on the ride by herself and she kind of has this um, melancholy but ultimately smiling face. Um, there's no one on either side of her, and it's almost like she's accepting of something that she wasn't accepting before, despite the ethos that Geraldine expresses, the movie's ethos, despite that, I think the movie is kind of saying here that, um, it seems like the point is sort of different from what the Silverman character expressed, right? It's almost like the point is, um... Not that you try to fill the gaps, but that, you know, bliss and the falling in love is, uh, those joys are fleeting and, um, ultimately you're alone (laughs) and, um, the only way to discover that is to go through the um, rather tumultuous um, experiences that at the end of the movie there, Margot has just gone through. Um, That's the only way to really have that sink in. You could have someone tell you that, you know, fundamentally you have to learn to um, 
kind of accept your own solitariness. <laughs> you know, even when you're in a relationship, you can feel solitary. But um, uh, you can have someone tell you that, but the only way to really have it sink in your brain is to, is to go through it yourself. Uh, uh, coincidentally, a very different um, movie that I think is barking up that tree too um, about life's fundamental solitariness is as we watch the credits here is uh, the master which we we did we just did a commentary for that's been posted um, I think originally I saw the master as um, a movie I loved and I saw it as a movie about relationships and human relationships and the the curiosities and difficulties of them but now I see the master as much more of a movie about um, loneliness and solitariness and you you try to reach out to make these connections sometimes idealized connections with you know you think the answers to your difficulties lie in in these connections you can make to other people and and uh, you realize that they really don't <laughs> um and so not uh, i i see this movie that way too i think at the end there you know, she looks happy because she's learned that she can, um, that she's learned something that is hard to take, that is hard to accept, which is that being alone is, you're alone even when you're not alone, and um, it's kind of disconcerting and sad, but better for having learned it i think she is um and i think she feels that way you see the take this waltz song um leonard cohen and he uh he took uh, uh cohen of course was a poet himself and he took uh that song from uh work by uh, uh lorca the great um spanish poet uh frederico garcia lorca and it's credited there in the in the credits at any rate i hope you've enjoyed this uh delving into uh, Take This Waltz. You can find more commentaries at robcaravaggio.blogspot.com Thank you for listening and we will see you next time. Bye now.